Hi, I'm Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today about Canada's Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, PEPIDA. And it's my pleasure to be speaking with Charlie Groves. He's Global Director of Business Development with CrowdStrike. Charlie, thanks so much for joining me today. Tom, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Charlie, let's talk a bit about PEPIDA. What's critical to know about it and how it fits into this whole new wave of global privacy legislation we've been seeing since the advent of GDPR? Yeah, so, Tom, you know, first of all, just some of the basics. Uh, it's important to understand that PEPIDA is not a new law. It's been on the books for a long time. But what is coming at us here is an amendment that will be effective on November 1st, which now creates a whole new set of provisions around breach notification. And so what that essentially means to companies that are out there is that they will have to make customers aware when their personal data has been compromised. One of the key drivers behind this amendment is really harmonize Canadian law with the new General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR that went into effect in the EU this last May. By harmonizing these legislations, it really supports ongoing Canadian EU trade. And so that's a, that's a big driver behind it. But there's, there's a few things that I think are critical to understand about this upcoming amendment. First is around prevention. So this new amendment is requiring companies to have, quote, adequate safeguards to prevent compromise of personal information. As you can tell, you know, that's a fairly vague standard. So that, that's one thing that uh, will have to be interpreted down the road. Know that not all breaches are reportable under the Act. So there is a materiality aspect here. And, and what the Act states is, again, quote, real risk of significant harm to the individual. That may be you know, anywhere from humiliation, damage to reputation or relationships or identity theft. So that's one thing that you'd, you'd want to be able to assess as you examine any particular breach. And then if material, then it is reportable not only to the privacy commissioner, but also to any affected individuals. And uh, this amendment carries up to a $100,000 fine for failing to comply with either the safeguards or the notification provisions. So that's kind of the backdrop how this fits into this wave of global privacy legislation, there's a whole bunch of other acts that are out there, right? Uh, the, the U.S., of course, has a tapestry of regulations, both at the state and federal level. Some of it is by industry that we all have uh, come to know, like HIPAA and PCI. But we're also seeing individual states pass a very onerous regulations. New York's Department of Financial Services is a great example of that that went into effect this last February that has really driven a lot of companies to examine their preparedness and to make changes within their environment. The EU, as I mentioned, has the GDPR. And then, of course, Australia passed what is known as the Notifiable Data Breaches Scheme, or NDB, and that went into effect in February. If you look across all of these various regulatory schemes, what I'm seeing is there's a couple of common elements. Uh, first of all, these acts create a duty to investigate every compromise to determine the harm. As I mentioned under PEPIDA, there is a materiality aspect to it. And so when you are compromised, you need to see if it's a reportable event. And then, of course, there's strict obligations to timely report those incidents. And we've seen acts like 
GDPR that have a 72 hour requirement versus like Pepita that that is when feasible. So, you know, we are seeing some differences, but certainly those just based on the duty to investigate as well as timely reporting are certainly common things. And Pepita seems to be right in line with these other regulatory schemes in the wave of litigation that we're seeing. Charlie, that's a terrific overview. If we could dive down into some of the details, how do you see Pepita changing the Canadian data protection landscape from where we are now once this amendment goes into effect? This particular amendment will be a significant shift. It certainly increases the onus on companies, uh, not only to prevent breaches, so there's going to be a lot around preparedness, but also to report them. You know, this in turn will drive greater public awareness when a company is compromised. That will then drive increased potential liability exposure. You know, I think if you look at the outcomes of these other regulatory schemes that we just talked about, I think they're very productive of what we're going to see in the Canadian landscape. So if you kind of think about it, you, you see enactment, you see increased reporting by companies of their compromises, which of course leads to increased public scrutiny. And then you have the governing bodies to begin enforcement actions as well as imposing fines. What we'll also see is that through those administrative actions, we'll, we'll get greater and greater definition around some of these standards under the act. Again, there's a lot of vagueness here, and that was probably intentional when those acts were enacted. The other thing that we'll see with greater public awareness, they also will become aware of third-party rights. That will in turn create private litigation. And really, I think what is interesting here is seeing what will happen with class actions. Of course, in the U.S., those abound, and, and we've seen those for years and years. If you look at sort of at the other end of the spectrum, the U.K. has always been very opposed to class actions, and even those judicial systems over there are beginning to entertain that. So what I would anticipate for Canada that is we will start seeing an increase in these class actions, of course, that is can be a huge component of the exposures for any company. Again, so because liability is heightened here, preparedness is going to be critical. Charlie, what would you say are the baseline standards organizations are now going to have to meet? Well, I think that's a great question for a couple of reasons. So I've, I've mentioned the vagueness of this act a couple of times, and I wanted to point out a couple of these things here. So First, as I mentioned, they are likely intentionally vague. So depending on the regulatory scheme, you might be trying to meet standards like you have to have state of the art or you must take reasonable measures or adequate safeguards. And so those don't necessarily provide a lot of directions for a company that is trying to meet those standards. We can certainly look at the outflow of administrative cases as well as private litigation in other areas. Of course, a landmark case here in the United States was the FTC versus Wyndham. So that was a hotel group that they posed a due process argument that there was an uncertain standard that they didn't know how to meet. But the court responded quite appropriately, which is when you have three breaches in two years and you really didn't implement what was recommended, it's sort of prima facie evidence that they failed to meet that standard. 
Similarly, in the EU, uh, they've handed out significant fines to a company that failed to patch their antivirus for six years. So there's certainly areas where you could go to to say this is certainly not reasonable. But then what what is reasonable? And sometimes it really takes some of this case law to be developed to better understand that. So one of the drivers, I think, behind the vagueness is that we have evolving threats. So what might be appropriate today might very well not be appropriate next year. What we're seeing, of course, across the threat landscape is that we have very, very sophisticated adversaries that have uh, tooling that is incredibly powerful. And now we're seeing sort of a blending between nation state tools and e-crime actors that can leverage those same tools. So a lot of groups are now armed with far more sophistication. So how do we combat that? Well, again, what you were doing last year might have been fine, but what you need to do this year is likely heightened. And so I think when these governing bodies are trying to impose the standard under the act, it really is giving them some leeway to address that, the the evolution of threats. I I hate to give a non-answer, and maybe this is the lawyer answer to it, which is it really will depend and it will continue to evolve over time. Again, it's, it's really looking for ways to be as prepared as you can be as these threats continue to evolve. So, Charlie, in that context, how do you advise organizations to prepare for this November 1 date? Uh, well, I think the starting point is an assessment of where they fall on the cyber maturity scale. So if, if you're way behind the curve in building up your cybersecurity posture, uh, you've got a lot of work in front of you. And so I think is what every company needs to do is build an overarching cyber risk plan that that includes breach preparedness, risk mitigation, as well as risk transfer. And so if you kind of break down each of those, what you want to do is really bring in trusted advisors from various fields that it may be legal, cybersecurity and and technology, you know, it'd be a, a blend of technology and services. Um, It could also be insurance professionals. The starting point is really looking at an incident response policy and plan. If you don't have one today, you need to get one as soon as possible. If you do have one, review them with your trusted advisors and make sure that, that it's working. The other thing is you need to practice them. You can't let dust collect on these plans and policies. You need to be practicing with a cross section of your own organization, as well as third-party advisors that really can help you navigate through what it would be like to respond to a a live breach. The other thing, I think you need to assess what services are out there to help you mature your cybersecurity posture. You know, it's, it's really identifying gaps. It's closing those gaps, then testing, and then you loop right back around and I try to identify more gaps, you know, as the threat landscape evolves. And then, of course, an evaluation of tools and technologies. Uh, again, he, here at CrowdStrike, we're a big advocate of cloud-based tools just because uh, you've got to evolve beyond patching. It needs to be, when we start talking about a state-of-the-art standard, well, part of having state-of-the-art is also using the latest technology. And if you haven't patched, then, of course, you're, you, you know it's very hard to meet that standard. 
That's really kind of a, a broad stroke of the different areas that you probably need to begin to examine internally and, and start working with, with advisors. We really think as a, as a great benchmark is uh, what we call a, a rule of 11060, which means that within one minute, you need to be able to identify a threat that has come into your environment. Within 10 minutes, you need to be able to formulate an action plan. And within 60 minutes, you need to be able to contain that threat. And we base that on what we see out there in the wild, what true adversaries are doing. Once they're in an, an environment, within an hour, they're able to pivot and gain access to begin exploiting the environment. So that's kind of a good benchmark to keep in mind. Charlie, if I can follow up on the topic of risk transfer, what do you see as the role of cyber insurance in Pepita compliance and what should it cover? I'm a big believer. At the very least, I think every organization needs to do the analysis to see what cyber insurance products are out there and how it would fit in to their overarching cyber risk management program. There are a lot of products out there and they are not all equal. Uh, you really need to look at the fine print. You need to work with a very qualified insurance broker that can help advise on these matters. But to, to kind of break it down, the basic cyber insurance policy, I mean, again, this is typically what they will cover. So the first off is breach response costs. So you get a compromise, you file a claim with your insurance carrier, and right out of the gates, that policy will cover the fees that are associated with your lawyers, your forensics, client notification that may be very well required under the act, ID monitoring, PR crisis management. And again, I noticed that forensics is part of that. And I think that Pepita will really drive the need to have very, very good forensics. Because again, that's what's gonna tell you whether or not you have a material breach. It will tell you whether or not you will have to comply with the notification provisions under the act. But other things that you also can get endorsements or other you know, that are often included in cyber insurance policies would be business interruption, data restoration. You also have extortion payments. Of course, you know, ransomware tended to be the big trend in 2017 and it continues into this year. And when you get hit with that and if you're forced to pay out that ransom, you can oftentimes have extortion payments covered under the policy. One thing that also to keep in mind and to really uh, take a close look at your policy is whether or not regulatory fines are covered under the policy. As we mentioned at the outset, Pepita has up to a $100,000 fine per incident. Now, that doesn't mean that, that the governing body is always going to, to hand out the max, maximum penalty. But again, it'd be interesting um, to see what that trend looks like. Regardless of whether or not it's imposed, when you're, when you're analyzing the cyber policy, that is a great question to ask your broker. Right now, we anticipate that they're likely going to be covered. Many policies will have language that's uh, somewhat broad, which says, you know, as long as it's permitted by law, we will, we will cover uh, regulatory fines. So it's, it's just one area of insurance that you'll definitely want to get advice on. One other point I'll make on cyber insurance is that most policies will require you as the insured to use breach response firms that are approved by the insurance carrier. 
So that's critical to review that list up front, make sure that they're acceptable. I would also highly encourage you to reach out to them and to interview them and actually select those that would participate in your IR planning, your incident response planning. I would also look at engaging with those firms and have retainers in place so that if you're ever compromised, it's a phone call away and you're not bogged down by negotiating terms and conditions of a contract. You're already familiar with the people on the other end of that phone call. They are, may already be familiar with your environment, which makes the kickoff of the engagement all that much faster. So there's a lot of things that can go into cyber insurance. I think it's a critical part of your overarching plan. At the very least, take a look at it and, and do your independent analysis. Charlie, final question for you. Talk to me about CrowdStrike. What are you doing to help organizations prepare for this November 1 date? Well, there's a couple things that come to mind, right? We absolutely want to be that trusted advisor, certainly from, uh, from the forensic standpoint as well as the preparedness side. And that could be a blend of both products and services. But I, I've mentioned it a couple of times, the need for the best forensics you can get uh, at CrowdStrike we have uh, one of the most highly rated forensic teams and they bring to bear a couple of things. Number one, a state-of-the-art tool set that gives us complete real-time visibility and an incident response very, very quickly. That allows us to see an entire environment in real-time see adversary activity. Um, we also are able to analyze artifacts that complete the story. So, when did the adversary get in? What did they have access to? What did they exfiltrate? Those are all critical questions that you have to answer under the act to know whether or not you have a material breach. We also leverage a lot of our own intelligence. So we have 50 operatives around the globe in 26 different countries building dossiers on, on over 100 adversary groups. That's critical in a forensics engagement to leverage that intelligence to know who's in your environment. What is their motivation? What are they likely wanting to get out of that? Uh, that gives us a lot of clues to understand whether or not they might be going after client information that you'll end up having to notify on. So forensics is key. Again, as I mentioned, cloud-based tools and technologies is critical even just as simple as antivirus. We have a cloud-based next generation antivirus that does far more than just looking for signatures and blocking known malware. We're now blocking, through machine learning, we're blocking zero-day threats. We're blocking ransomware, things that have never been seen by the industry. So when you start thinking about state-of-the-art, um, I highly encourage you to look at those providers that are cloud-based, that don't require patching, that keep you up to speed at every minute of the day. So that's just a few ways. Of course, we have a whole menu of services around preparedness, helping companies develop IR plans to test those plans, to do adversary emulations, to see if can we penetrate the environment. So there's a lot of things that I think we can bring to bear. We have a great team in Canada, a lot of support up there, and, and would more than welcome the opportunity uh, to help clients uh, to, to get ready for this amendment when it takes effect on, the, on November 1st. Charlie, you've been very insightful. Thanks so much for your time and your insight today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Again, we've been talking about preparing for Pepita. I've been speaking with Charlie Groves, Global Director of Business Development with CrowdStrike. 
For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.